millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Amherst is a beautiful small town in northwestern Nova Scotia, right in the Chignecto Isthmus on the border of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Originally, it was the site of a Micmac village. It was later settled by Acadians, and when the Acadians were expelled, it was settled by English farmers from the north country of Yorkshire. It developed, like most small towns, based around a railway and local industry. It experienced ups and downs, once in a while making the front pages of a major Nova Scotia newspaper, but for the most part, retaining a small but bustling energy as the province entered the 20th century. Yet, for one brief historical moment, a figure arrived in Amherst, a person who would come to be one of the most important historical figures of the early 20th century, and someone who probably never thought they would find themselves imprisoned in this small, lovely, rural community. This is Season 5, Episode 4, Amherst VIP prisoner, Trotsky in the Maritimes. The book recommendation for today is Joshua Rubenstein's Leon Trotsky, A Revolutionary's Life, published by Yale Press in 2011. This is an extremely well-researched and balanced portrayal of a brilliant idealist, who became a brutal, ruthless, and stubborn leader in the rise of communism. Okay, in order to realize and understand the significance of Trotsky's time in the Maritimes, it's important to understand the story of the man himself. So let's go back to the year 1879, the 7th of November. Lev Davidovich Bronstein, a.k.a. Leon Trotsky, was born the fifth child to a Ukrainian Jewish family in what was once part of the Russian Empire, but is today Bereslavka in the Ukraine. His family was poor and rural. They lived over 20 kilometers from the nearest post office. But 
His father made enough money to send young Leon, or Lev, to school in Odessa. Trotsky first became politically active during this early schooling period. While he started out as an avowed agrarian socialist, this sort of merging of socialist economic thought with the embracing of the rural commune structure that characterized the Russian Empire, by 1897 he had converted and embraced Marxism, mostly on account of being converted by his future first wife, Alexandra Sokolovskaya. By the late 1890s, Trotsky, now working on behalf of the working class, was organizing various labor groups, writing and printing leaflets and pamphlets, distributing revolutionary material, and lecturing to various student groups. By 1898, his activism on behalf of the working class brought him to the attention of the Russian government and the Russian secret police. Trotsky was promptly jailed. For two years, he awaited trial, but during this period, he was brought into contact with numerous other political radicals arrested on similar charges. It was during this time, for instance, that he first read a book by a young author named V.I. Lenin, the soon-to-be leader of the Bolshevik Party and eventually the Communist Soviet Union. Trotsky finally received a trial in 1900, where he was sentenced to four years' exile in Siberia, a popular punishment for dissidents in the empire. Him and his now wife Alexandra, the two were married while Trotsky was in a Moscow prison, thus spent their next years together in the cold, cold Siberian tundra, where they had two children. But exile would be temporary. In 1902, the family escaped. First, Trotsky, hidden in a load of hay in a wagon, and then Alexandra and the two children. It was after this successful escape from Siberia that he eventually adopted the surname Trotsky. The story goes that this was the name of one of his jailers. Trotsky and his family found themselves in London, where Trotsky fell in with V.I. Lenin, the one who wrote the book Trotsky read in jail, and, of course, other leading Marxists. In fact, Trotsky began writing for the very famous Marxist newspaper Iskra. It's also during this time that Trotsky fell in love with a different woman, Natalia Sedova, who returned his affection, not surprisingly then, his first marriage to Alexandra fell apart. Trotsky and Natalia were married in 1903. Trotsky would have two more children with Natalia. Now, it was around this time, Trotsky and Natalia's marriage, that Lenin first formed the Bolshevik Party. The Bolshevik Party was Lenin's vision of a small, highly disciplined revolutionary vanguard that would lead the transformation to a communist state. Now, a number of Lenin's Marxist contemporaries argued that instead of this small vanguard, the movement needed a larger, less centralized party. This latter group would form the party known as the Mensheviks. Surprisingly, Trotsky first went with the Mensheviks, splitting with Lenin, in fact, Lenin at this time referred to him as a Judas. Trotsky, however, worked very hard to reconcile the two factions. 
but to no avail. By 1904, Trotsky split from the Mensheviks due to their opposition to reconciliation with their former Marxist allies. When the 1905 revolution erupted in Russia, Trotsky snuck back into the empire, first setting up in Kiev and eventually getting into the capital of St. Petersburg. Once in the capital, Trotsky found himself working closely with both members of the Bolshevik and Menshevik party, writing and distributing Marxist literature. However, his presence was discovered, and once again Trotsky fled, this time to Finland. Yet he could not stay away long. Trotsky re-entered before the year was finished, and this time the authorities caught him. He was arrested, tried, and sentenced to exile in Siberia. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So Trotsky found himself in Siberia again, and again Trotsky escaped, and again Trotsky returned to London. In 1908, however he moved to Vienna to join the editorial staff of Pravda, a bi-weekly Russian-language newspaper smuggled into Russia and popular amongst Russian workers. While working for the newspaper and writing extensively on the plight of the Russian working class, Trotsky also spent these years attempting to reconcile what seemed more and more like an irreconcilable split between Lenin's Bolsheviks and the Menshevik party. Interestingly, Trotsky identified with neither party during this period and made that very public on numerous occasions. During the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913 in southern Europe, Trotsky was employed as a war correspondent for a variety of radical Russian and Ukrainian newspapers. When the First World War erupted in 1914, Trotsky, as a Russian citizen and thus enemy to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was at war with Russia, had to flee to neutral Switzerland to avoid being arrested. Trotsky once again took up the mantle of war correspondent and then moved to Paris. Yet he quickly embraced an anti-war stance and became more and more public about it. Eventually, The French authorities deported him for his anti-war position, and Trotsky found himself in Spain, ever the traveler. Yet the Spanish government wanted nothing to do with this rabble-rouser, and they deported him to the United States. He arrived in New York in January of 1917 and wound up finding a place in the Bronx. It was while writing in the Bronx actually at 1522 Vice Avenue, for anyone visiting or living there, that the revolution erupted once again back in Russia. In March of 1917, Tsar Nicholas II was overthrown. Trotsky immediately sought to return to Russia and began to put together the necessary paperwork to make this happen. 
Unbeknownst to Trotsky, though, the British authorities, with a lot of help from the Americans, had been keeping an eye on this infamous Marxist. The concern, frankly, was Trotsky's anti-war stance. If an influential figure like Trotsky entered Russia during this tumultuous period, he could very well help push Russia out of the war, something the British were desperate to avoid. What's interesting to note, though, for all you history lovers of the First World War, is that while all this is going on, in Europe, in a sealed-up armored train, Lenin was being transported by the Germans to the Russian border. Seems like everybody saw the potential in these revolutionaries. So the British plan was to, frankly, detain Trotsky and maybe not let him return to Russia while the war was still on. But there was some skepticism by certain British officials as to the legality of the whole detain Trotsky plan. Yet the American intelligence agency was on board. They wanted him out of their country, and the higher-ups within British security approved the move. Thus, on 3rd April 1917, the vessel Trotsky was sailing on, the SS Christian Fjord, was stopped by the British and Trotsky, his family, and a small group of revolutionary retainers, who were all hoping to go to Russia, were taken off and detained. Now, Trotsky was never actually arrested. He was, legally speaking, interned, though roughly For when Trotsky and his family and friends refused to disembark, they were seized upon by the British Marines and taken off by force. In fact, Trotsky's 11-year-old son punched one of the British officers in the face while arresting his father. Folks, before we continue, I just want to give you a reminder that this show relies heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon, and both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate like two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. If you want to go to Patreon right now on your computer, you can go to www.patreon.com slash history. We thank everybody for the donations. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. So please don't be shy. Now on with our regularly scheduled program. So after Trotsky, his family, and his followers were roughly removed from the vessels supposedly taking them home, they found themselves in the hands of the British Empire in Halifax, Nova Scotia, temporarily billeted with the Royal Navy's Russian translator and later in a Halifax hotel. Finally, though, Trotsky and his revolutionary retainers were transferred to a place called Amherst Internment Camp. Trotsky's family remained in Halifax. In fact, in Trotsky's own autobiography, the chapter for this period of his life is titled In a Concentration Camp. Now, Trotsky writes of the camp, and I want to sort of quote you from his own autobiography. 
And he writes, The Amherst concentration camp was located in an old and very dilapidated iron foundry that had been confiscated from its German owner. The sleeping bunks were arranged in three tiers, two deep, on each side of the hall. About 800 of us lived in these conditions. The air in this improvised dormitory at night can be imagined. Men hopelessly dogged the passages, elbowed their way through, lay down or got up, played cards or chess. Many of them practiced crafts, some with extraordinary skill. I still have, stored in Moscow, some things made by Amherst prisoners. And yet, in spite of the heroic efforts of the prisoners to keep themselves physically and morally fit, five of them had gone insane. We had to eat and sleep in the same room with these madmen. Trotsky spent one month in the Amherst camp. The camp was run by veterans of Britain's Boer War, and camp life consisted of military-like manual labor, sweeping floors, peeling potatoes, washing dishes, cleaning the bathrooms, and working on the land in the region around the camp. Most of Trotsky's fellow internees were Germans, German sailors who had been rescued from sinking vessels off the Canadian coast, German citizens who had simply been in Canada when war was announced, and a smattering of German soldiers and officers. Trotsky was, naturally, furious about his arrest. He told his son that this was his first lesson in British democracy, as Trotsky, ever the legalist, was apoplectic at the illegality of the whole event. However, he spent his time within the camp attempting to garner organized sympathy from his fellow internees. He writes, The whole month there was like one continuous mass meeting. I told the prisoners about the Russian Revolution, about the causes and collapse of the old international and the intervention of the United States in the war. Besides these speeches, we had constant group discussions. Trotsky was not wasting his time. He soon began to attract a fair following of German sympathizers and slowly began mobilizing them against the camp authorities. Quickly, Trotsky found himself an antagonist to not only the interned German officers, who did not like him organizing the rank and file, but also an antagonist to the camp commandant. Trotsky was ordered to cease speaking to his fellow inmates and at one point was even thrown into isolation to prevent him from public speaking and mobilization attempts. In true Marxist fashion, a written petition was placed in front of the camp commandant demanding Trotsky be allowed to continue speaking. The petition garnered 530 signatures. Trotsky's friends within the various Marxist groups throughout Europe wrote numerous appeals to the British and provisional Russian government. The Russian provisional government was hesitant to demand any sort of freedom for comrade Trotsky, notorious anti-war advocate. Yet at the same time, the Russian provisional government did not want to alienate the support of the left within their new social democratic regime. Thus, after weeks of delay, the new Russian government formally requested his release. Russia, at the time, was still a British ally in the war, and the British authorities relented. Trotsky, his retinue, and his family were finally allowed to return to Russia. As Trotsky departed the camp, he wrote, 
The sailors and workers lined the passage on both sides. An improvised band played the revolutionary march, and friendly hands were extended from every quarter. One of the prisoners delivered a short speech acclaiming the Russian Revolution and cursing the German monarchy. Even now, it makes me happy to remember that in the very midst of the war, we were fraternizing with German sailors in Amherst. And so Trotsky's brief but dynamic stay in the Maritimes had come to an end. But of course, Trotsky's journey continued on. He returned to Russia, joined the Bolshevik party, played a central role in the Bolsheviks seizing control of the Russian state, helped facilitate the withdrawal of Russia from the war, and perhaps even most famously became the top Bolshevik general during the Russian Civil War, where Trotsky's leadership, dedication, as well as cold-blooded, ruthless discipline turned the Bolshevik armed forces into the vaunted Red Army. By the end of the Russian Civil War, Leon Trotsky was one of the five most powerful men in the Bolshevik party and thus in the new Soviet Union. He had developed quite a following and was known on occasion to lead political opposition against Lenin himself, who was now the leader of the new USSR. When Lenin died, Trotsky was certainly one of the most likely candidates to take his place at the head of Bolshevik Russia, yet he had made numerous enemies during his rise to power, and his enemies formed around another front-runner for the party leadership, Yosef Stalin. By 1927, Trotsky and his key supporters found themselves outmaneuvered by the Stalinists and were expelled from the Central Committee, effectively the main decision-making body of the Bolshevik regime. They were then kicked out of the Communist Party, and finally Trotsky found himself on familiar ground, exile, this time in Kazakhstan. But exile only lasted a brief period, as the decision was made by the Soviet leadership that Trotsky was to be expelled from the Soviet Union altogether. And thus, Trotsky's life as a leading figure in the USSR had come to a crashing end. Any Trotskyists left within the USSR either capitulated to the new boss, Stalin, or found themselves in prison. Trotsky and his wife spent their days bouncing around to various places, first in Turkey, then France, then Norway, then Mexico, where he finally lived out the rest of his days, though the rest of his days were relatively short. You see, back in Moscow, Trotsky's name had been completely destroyed, and a number of show trials had quote-unquote proven that Trotsky sought to undermine the current Soviet leadership. A number of old Trotskyists were found guilty of trumped-up crimes against the state and executed. Trotsky himself was made out to be a traitor to the working class and became enemy number one in the USSR. On the 20th of August, 1940, Trotsky was attacked by an assassin, the third attempt on his life within 10 months. The assassin wielded a pickaxe, which he slammed into Trotsky's head. And incredibly, Trotsky survived this initial blow, fought off his attacker, and made it to a local hospital on his own. On the 21st of August, 1940, however, he succumbed to his wounds. Thus ended the life of Stalin's boogeyman, a central figure in the history of Russian communism, the Soviet Union, 
and 20th century Europe. Trotsky died at 60 years of age, having seen the world and changing much of it forever. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.